Heavens can witness, I love none but you. From my embracements thus he breaks away. Oh, that mine arms could close this isle about, that I might pull him to me where I would, or that these tears that drizzle from mine eyes had power to mollify his stony heart, that when I had him we might never part. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Finding History. I'm your host, Victoria, and that was a line from Christopher Marlowe's play, Edward II. Some historians would argue that it was Marlowe's play that started the rumors around Edward II's sexuality. The play focuses on Edward's scandalous relationship with Pierce Scaviston and the effect it had on the English court. Christopher Marlowe was attracted to the unsuccessful reign of Edward II and his relationship to Pierce. The play was published post-mortem as Marlowe had been murdered at a young age. Very suspicious indeed. I first learned about Edward II when I was a preteen, watching the blockbuster hit of the late 90s Braveheart by Meltdown Gibson. Yes, you heard me correctly. I always refer to him as Meltdown. Edward II was the rumored-to-be queer son of the ruthless English monarch Edward I, also referred to as Longshanks, a nickname given to him because he was super tall. Edward was presented as effeminate and weak in the film. This brought some criticism not only from a queer audience, but from historians who believe that Edward II was definitely not gay. I've heard it from so many sources, everything from he wasn't gay because that's just how men behaved in the Middle Ages, or Edward fathered children in his marriage and outside of his marriage, so therefore he couldn't have been gay, right? But that's just, hmm, I don't know. I mean, how many queer people since the dawn of time have had children through cis-heterosexual sex? A whole lot of them, because they weren't allowed to marry who they really wanted to, or did not have the option to not get married. Women were to be married or sent to a nunnery. Uh, when you're a lesbian in the Middle Ages, whether you want to or not, you're getting married, and you're going to have some random dude's kids. Uh, so that argument to me isn't strong or legitimate enough evidence. Plenty of gay people have had children through reproductive sex. Come on now. I would also like to add that I believe this response is based on the assumption that gay men would find sex with a woman so disgusting that they couldn't do it. I can't speak for gay men, obviously, but as I said before, plenty of gay people have managed to have cis-heterosexual sex without being physically repulsed. Edward could have been able to have sex and maybe even enjoyed it a little. Who's to say? Homosexuality doesn't mean repulsion of the opposite sex. If anything, it was cis-straight men who often wrote how unclean and dirty a woman's body was. It's also difficult for me to believe that this is just how men acted. I have read the, of traditions where some knights uh, would kiss upon meeting, especially if they hadn't seen each other for a while, uh, but the church kind of quickly shut that down and was like, hey guys, you can't do that anymore. And I've also heard of brother-making ceremonies, which I believe were from the Byzantine Empire, where two people of the same sex, often men of course, uh, could join in a union of brotherhood, uh, but it wasn't clear if it was like gay marriage or it was done out of like religious or financial reasons. But Edward had faced so much scrutiny and disapproval for the relationship with Pierce. He had him banished three times, not by his doing, but because the barons and other noblemen were threatening them both if he didn't leave. 
Friends or not, I, I do not see a medieval king doing this and risking so much if he did not love him on a romantic level. I'm going to talk mostly about Edward II, uh, but I kind of can't do that without mentioning his father and his wife, Isabella of France, also referred to as Le Louvre de France, uh, the she-wolf of France. So uh, just a heads up, I'm going to be throwing around a lot of names and a lot of events, uh, but I, I'd really like to paint you a detailed account of just the kind of world Edward II lived in. Uh, with that said, let's start the show. Edward II was an English king that reigned from 1307 to 1327. He was the last-born son of Edward I and Eleanor of Castile. His older brothers had all predeceased him and died in their childhood, making him the last heir. Edward was born in the newly occupied Wales in Carnarfon Castle. He was the first Prince of England to receive the title of Prince of Wales. Prince of Wales was a title that was held by Welsh monarchs prior to the 12th century. The Welsh pronunciation of this title is to Wysok Cymru, which translates to the one who leads. The title was taken upon the death of the last monarch of Wales, Llewellyn ap Griffith, at the English conquest of Wales. I will discuss more on a future episode of the occupation of Wales and the loss of their royal house. The title of Prince of Wales is still used today by the British monarchy, but I believe it is a title they should retire. Apparently, there was some English propaganda about the birth of Edward in that a prince born on Welsh land would become the next King Arthur. Believing this lie, I think the English were maybe trying to soften the blow of having taken Welsh land by ensuring that all would be well because, hey guys, King Arthur 2.0 is coming back and he's going to be better than ever. And we all remember him as being good, right? Well, no, we don't because he didn't exist. And the story of King Arthur was essentially a good night story to tell folks that they were good kings who actually cared about you and they were courageous and brave and they were going to, they had like the promise of a peaceful kingdom. That was the lie they loved to tell, right? If you guys want me to do an episode on English fables such as King Arthur or Robin Hood, I definitely can because I love that stuff. Obviously, these fables were successful as medieval people fully believe them, and they're stories that we still tell today. Anyway, much to his pro-military daddy's dismay, Prince Edward was not like his father. He spoke Anglo-Norman French, which was the common language for higher-ranking classes in medieval England. He enjoyed music, especially the rote, which is a Welsh string instrument. He was interested in gardening and enjoyed rowing. He was also said to be very generous to his housing staff, and often was seen conversing with laborers and other lower-class workers. This attracted a lot of criticism from his contemporaries, and the nobility regarded this behavior as bizarre. Piers Gaveston was employed under King Edward I. Piers was the son of a knight and came from the south of France in the region of Gascony. Edward I was impressed by Piers's conduct and his military interest and believed he would make a good impression on his son, and he indeed made an impression. Piers was also regarded by those who liked him as sharp-witted, graceful, and well-versed in military matters. Edward I had placed Gaveston in his son's household possibly around 1300, and the two quickly became close. King Edward I had Piers banished from the land for reasons unknown, 
it was rumored and believed by some historians that Prince Edward had wanted to gift Pierce with land and title, and the king grew so furious that he tore hair from Prince Edward's scalp and banished Pierce from the kingdom. Edward is said to have given Pierce horses, fine clothing, and money before he was forced to flee. It is assumed that as King Edward I lay dying, that he told his advisers to make sure that Pierce did not return to England. Within a month of his father's death, Edward II requested that Pierce return to his side. He then bestowed the title of the Earldom of Cornwall and arranged a fancy marriage match with Edward's own niece. The earldom was a title often given to family or very high-ranking nobility. In the eyes of the medieval court, Pierce was too low in rank for such a title. This title also is said to have belonged to Edward's younger half-brother, Edmund, and many felt this was a betrayal. This is clear to me, at least, that Pierce was Edward's chosen family. Even though the new king was initially met with goodwill from his subjects, it was not long before certain members of the nobility became disaffected with Gaveston and the special relationship he enjoyed with Edward. On the 2nd of December in 1307, exactly one month after Gaveston's marriage, the king organized a tournament in Gaveston's honor. It was said that Gaveston was displaying such arrogance at the tournament that the nobility began to openly resent his presence. When Edward II went to France to meet his new bride in person, he left Piers as regent of the kingdom. This was pretty unheard of. This responsibility was only given to close family of the king. Also, in times where the king left the land, sometimes their spouse would act as a regent while they were away. Could Edward have been alluding to the fact that Piers was more than a friend? That he was maybe his partner of choice? There are no detailed accounts of how Piers managed the kingdom, only that the nobility regarded him as arrogant and totally mean to them. Upon Edward's return from France with his new bride Isabella, Edward lavished Pierce with attention. Pierce sat by Edward's side with Isabella on the other side during the coronation feast. Edward had dressed Pierce in purple, the color of royalty. Purple fabric was difficult to produce and therefore had high value. Only royal families could afford such decadence. Edward did not speak to his new bride at the feast, and even went as far as putting a wedding ring on Pierce's finger. This enraged the nobility, who were already just fed up, and they demanded Pierce be banished immediately. Edward initially resisted, but had to give in to the demand once it became clear that the barons had the support of King Philip IV of France, who was offended by Edward's treatment of his daughter. No doubt this was the beginning of Isabella's resentment of Edward that would lead down his own path of destruction. Gaveston's second exile was imminent. The barons claimed they would not act on anything else until Gaveston was banished. Edward resisted but eventually gave in as he was very close to excommunication by the Archbishop of Canterbury. His wife Isabella also pushed for the banishment. I'd also like to add that Edward's stepmother, Margaret, provided £40,000 to the barons to push for Piers's banishment. Now, why would so many people not only be pushing for exile, but also heavily fund this exile of Piers if he was not a friend? Why would they push so hard if he was indeed just a friend? Edward had sent Piers to Ireland at his choosing. Initially, Piers was to be sent to Aquitaine in France, but this way he was able to make him Lord Lieutenant of Ireland upon his exile. 
Edward toyed with the idea of following his pro-military daddy's footsteps by attacking Scotland, but dismissed the idea and instead focused on bringing Gaveston back to the kingdom. He started negotiations with the current pope and King Philip IV of France, Isabella's father. Edward had offered to oppress the Knights Templar Order in England if it meant Gaveston could return home to England unharmed. Edward was able to bring Pierce home through distribution of patronage and concessions to political demands. Edward is said to have been waiting on the docks when Pierce's boat arrived from Ireland. The second exile had resulted in Pierce losing the title of Earl of Cornwall. Edward had given Pierce cash to make up for this loss of title. However, it wasn't long until Edward gave him back his titles and even more money. It also didn't take long for Gaveston to start showing off in front of the nobility again and resorted to creating nicknames for the nobles that despised him the most. Lancaster the Fiddler and Lincoln Burstbelly are the only two I feel comfortable saying. Pierce is said to have exploited the king's gifts upon his servants and relatives, only adding fuel to the fire. The political climate became so hateful that many earls refused to attend Parliament if Pierce would be present. This resulted in the barons presenting a list of grievances they wanted addressed by the king. Some of these grievances included what Edward's plans with Scotland were and another proposed exile of Pierce. Now, briefly backpedaling back to Edward's father, Edward I, he had waged war with the Scots for many years. The Scots fought hard for Scottish independence under the guidance of William Wallace, whom Edward I had executed. Nevertheless, the fight for Scottish independence was still strong, but once Edward II had become king, he showed little interest in continu continuing the war with the Scots. This enraged the nobility as they had invested a lot of money in the Scottish war. I believe Edward had acted on impulse rather than strategy and led many failed battle attempts with the Scots to appease the, the nobility. This resulted in Robert the Bruce reclaiming a lot of stolen Scottish land from England. Now, any time a monarch lost a battle or lost land, he was immediately viewed as a weak monarch, at least in the eyes of the English court. In regards to Pierce, he was sent into exile for a third time, and Edward was unable to fight it. His exile, though, only lasted for two months, and upon his return, Edward once again restored all his titles and land. Edward had declared that any judgment of Pierce was considered unlawful. Royal and baronial parties now began to prepare for war. Pierce and Edward bounced from castle to castle to escape attack. It's unclear to me, uh, at least in my research, but Edward and Pierce had separated for a brief time, possibly in an effort to protect Edward from harm. Pierce took refuge in a different castle. Once he did, though, he was quickly captured but the barons had assured him that he would not be harmed. Well, one day, Pierce had left his captors, possibly to meet with his wife or maybe Edward, we don't know. Uh, but upon doing so, a mob of nobles tracked Pierce down and murdered him, dragging him into the forest, stabbing him, and then beheading him. Edward was enraged when he learned about the death of Pierce. He is said to have vowed vengeance and grieved heavily. However, circumstances prevented him from taking immediate action with the executioners. The following years were marked by a constant power struggle between Edward and the barons. 
The matter was finally settled almost ten years later when the baron responsible for the attack on Pierce, Thomas Lancaster, also cousin of the king, was defeated in the Battle of Boroughbridge and was executed as a traitor. Edward II had spared him the horrid hanging, drawing, and quartering method of execution. However, he ensured that an inexperienced executioner would be used, and it took three blows to sever Thomas Lancaster's head. During that time, Edward had become friendly with a family known as the Dispensers. They were a wealthy English family, and after losing touch with the nobility, Edward turned to them for support. Edward was also said to have shown favoritism towards Hugh Dispenser the Younger. One chronicler is noted as saying Edward loved him deeply with all his heart and mind. Both Hugh and his father were said to have supported Pierce and Edward's friendship from the beginning. Isabella was said to have been able to work decently with Pierce Gaveston. There is obvious tension, but they weren't known to hate each other. At least that's what historians would have us believe. However, that can't be said for Hugh Dispenser. Following a sweeping revenge against the barons, the Dispensers and the king confiscated land and imposed large-scale imprisonment for supporters of Thomas Lancaster. This included some of Isabella's friends and some of her staff. The Dispensers had a big influence over Edward, and often Hugh the Younger would prevent Isabella from seeing her husband. I do think if the king had wanted to see his wife, he would have, but possibly at this point he had no interest in doing so. It's also rumored that Hugh Dispenser may have assaulted Isabella somehow. Isabella was said to have hated how Hugh Dispenser treated royal women. Perhaps she was not the only woman that he assaulted. Now, I want to give you a little backstory on Isabella and why she was referred to as Le Louvre de France. Isabella was born in 13th century Paris. Her father, Philip IV, was said to be stoic and unemotional. He was responsible for the persecution of the Knights Templar and the expulsion of the Jewish people. Philip was in debt to both Knights Templar, which was a medieval religious order, and to the Jewish population of France. Philip did what he could to escape accountability, and had the Knights Templar dismantled, tortured, and burned alive. He even went as far as threatening the current Pope if he stood in his way of persecuting the order. Philip followed Edward I's lead by expelling the Jewish population of his own country. Edward I had also incurred massive debt from all his military campaigns, and later imposed a heavy tax. Many people were against the tax, and Edward turned the public's attention to the Jewish population, stating how many people were in debt because of them, and this fueled widespread anti-Semitism. Many Jewish people were killed, and their properties were seized by the crown. What followed was an expulsion of the Jewish population from England that lasted about 300 years. Most Jewish people only took what they could carry, and anything left behind went to the crown. Maybe you're all wondering why I chose to disclose this info about uh, both former kings. To understand the political climate at the time, I must discuss the actions of both kings. Uh, their actions began a giant wave of anti-Semitism throughout Europe with other monarchs imposing similar laws. This lack of accountability for French and English royals led to the violent oppression of Jewish people. It left a lasting impression on royal generations who followed. And as I stated earlier, Edward II was willing to punish the Knights Templar order to bring his favorite side-piece lover, Pierce, back home. 
In 1313, Isabella traveled to Paris with her husband to garner further French support. Isabella had gifted her brothers and sisters-in-law with embellished purses. The French, of course, vowed to support them both, Isabella and her husband, against any opposing parties. Later that year, Isabella and Edward held a grand party in London, and to her surprise, she saw that two Norman knights carried the exact same purses she had gifted to her sisters-in-law. What followed would be known as l'affaire de la Tour de Nel. Isabella concluded that the pair must have been having an illicit affair and ran to her evil French daddy to snitch on all of them. Le Tour de Nel was an old guard tower in Paris next to the River Seine. Blanche and Margaret and the two knights were said to have partied and fornicated within the tower. Evil French daddy took it upon himself to place the knights under arrest and interrogate everyone and anyone. Now, why Isabella couldn't have just minded her own damn business is beyond me. Maybe she was bored, maybe she was upset that she was married to a gay man, or maybe, just maybe, she would rather saddle up her loyalty to the French patriarchy than to women seeking pleasure. What we do know is Isabella made a choice. She chose men before women, and time and time again she would make the same choice. Isabella's actions in the 14th century were to be repeated by powerful white women for centuries to come. By all accounts, the affairs did very much happen, but that's no excuse for what happened next. Both women, Blanche and Margaret, were imprisoned for life for the crime of adultery. They had their heads shaved and were kept underground. The two Norman knights, known as Philip and Walter, were subjected to brutal torture, dragged through the streets, and then beheaded. By some accounts, both men were flayed, Game of Thrones style. Jumping now to a few years later, Isabella has had enough of Edward's lack of military expertise and his male favorites. This is when she took it upon herself to take their child, another Edward, with her to France. She claimed she was returning to serve as a delegate, but what she was really doing was building an army. Isabella told the French that their son Edward would be Edward III and would usurp her husband. France shared a similar attitude to England when it came to women rulers. They didn't believe they were capable of ruling. Though Isabella had plans to use her child as a sort of puppet monarch while she called all the shots. She wore all black while in French company, claiming that though her husband was very much alive, she felt the marriage had died. Around this time, Isabella had also begun an affair with a man named Roger Mortimer, which really tells you something. Clearly, Isabella had no problem fucking someone that was not her husband, so I doubt she was offended by her former sister-in-laws getting it on with a couple of knights. She was risking quite a bit by having the affair, though, seeing as how France treated women who did commit adultery. She must have felt secure enough to be so bold. Again, I believe she just played into the patriarchy of her family for power, and that was her security. Isabella and Roger were said to have an instant attraction. He was an English exile, and they both enjoyed Arthurian legends and shared an absolute contempt for the English monarch. Upon her return to England, with her lover in tow and her mercenary army, she seized the country in a lightning campaign. When her army captured Hugh Dispenser, he had tried to starve himself before his execution, knowing full well it was going to be bloody as fuck. 
She had him hung, drawn, and quartered, and was said to have feasted the entire duration of his execution. Both Isabella and Roger took control of the land and forced Edward II to abdicate the throne in favor of his child, Prince Edward. There was no established protocol for removing an English king. There were a series of allegations about the king's conduct, and due to London riots and political unrest, Parliament called for the abdication to proceed. It was argued that Edward's weak leadership and personal faults had led the kingdom into disaster and deemed him incompetent. After his abdication, Edward remained imprisoned. I have read a few different accounts of how he was treated while imprisoned. Some say he was neglected and even starved, while others claim he was well-treated. One account I found claimed that Isabella brought him gifts while he was imprisoned, and this was proof that Isabella still loved Edward. I find this theory to be really ridiculous. Imprisoning someone or enslaving them isn't love, and it's not romantic at all. If Isabella did visit Edward, it wasn't out of love. Any gift or trinket he received from her was just her telling him not to forget who was really in charge here. Edward, however, was moved around quite a bit as plots rose to free him. He did not stay in prison for long. He's rumored to have died from a fatal accident, but no one knows for sure. Rumors circulated that Edward had somehow escaped prison and lived as a hermit far, far away from the court. Also that the body they buried was the body of one of his captors. I believe he was murdered, and this is a widely accepted theory. However, I believe he was murdered by Isabella and her lover Roger, if not by their men. The method was likely suffocation or a red-hot poker in the rear end. What I find interesting and disturbing about the possibility of murder is when Isabella died, she was said to have been buried with her wedding veil and a small casket containing Edward II's heart. I have to wonder what her motives were in doing so. I really don't believe their marriage was a happy one, though some would argue it was, but based on their actions, both of their actions, I really don't get how anyone can come to that conclusion. I cannot see that her intentions were heartfelt in doing this. Maybe she wore the veil as it was a symbol of her becoming Queen of England, um, and the path that followed. Maybe she kept his heart close to her as she had maybe once longed to belong to him, or she felt that he very much belonged to her. Based on her actions, what we know of their marriage, and what we know of her relationship with her family, I really don't think Isabella did any of that as a sign of true love. I think it was power and control, and I see this as being manipulative. I hold your heart captive so no one else will. I would like to believe that Edward escaped his captors, that he ran away, and did indeed become a hermit, living far, far away from the English court, maybe on an island in the Mediterranean, and that he died an old man, surrounded by his chosen family, and the heart that Isabella holds captive is that of his captors. Truth be told, I do not think Edward deserves our full empathy, or I should say we should be cautiously empathetic towards him. Like other monarchs before him and after him, he still puts his needs before the kingdoms and thus is not what I consider a successful leader. I mean, if you want a podcast that's going to talk about how great a king or a queen was, this isn't the podcast for you. I'm here to analyze who these people were based on the facts that we know. 
I do absolutely feel that the rumors regarding Edward II's sexuality to be true and who he was fueled this like vicious contempt for him. I've spent a long time studying monarchy and most were selfishly motivated, power hungry, or just plain stupid. Edward's father, for example, is someone whom England believes to be a good monarch because he was so pro-military and ruthless and conquered people, and I just don't agree. Uh, I, I do think he acted as a blueprint for what England would consider a successful ruler. Some would say I can't judge medieval people by today's standards of um, leadership, but come on, look around us. We're a reflection of a world that glorified conquerors, and we're a mess I believe that Edward was in love with Pierce, and I believe that Pierce loved him as well. That's what I want to believe, and that's what I'm going to believe. And based on the evidence out there, I don't think this is much of a reach. We'll never know the intimate conversations they shared, and we'll never know exactly what they meant to one another. Um, and I believe any concrete evidence that did exist was destroyed. Now, would it really be terrible if Edward II, son of grand military leader Edward I, turned out to be gay? Would it ruin the legacy of monarchy if historians agree on the possibility of him being gay? No, it wouldn't. We celebrate monarchs who were racist, anti-Semites, hated women so much that they murdered their own wives, the monarchs who oppressed the poor and started unnecessary wars. Why is being gay considered more shameful to the crown than any of those things? Now, what do you think about Edward II? Do you think he was secretly gay? Or do you think he was just a straight guy who was too incompetent to rule? I'd like to end this show with a quote from an anonymous chronicler in the 1320s that describes how Edward felt such love for Gaveston that he entered into a covenant of constancy and bound himself with him before all other mortals with a bond of indissoluble love, firmly drawn up and fastened with a knot. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Finding History. I'm your host, Victoria, and as always, stay curious and stay safe.